Confederation is the Civil War. Like the South never forgot the Civil War. There's people in Newfoundland never forgot the Confederation battle. Everybody had an opinion. I mean, some people actually argued about it and fought about it. And there were people who left home in a rage and slammed the doors. I presume they reconciled with their families afterwards. But it was, it was really emotional. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent country within the British Commonwealth, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Bishop O'Reilly in Cornerbrook, a Irishman himself, was very pro-Confederate. I remember my father saying that Canadians were just Americans with the varnish rubbed off. How did the debate go down? Who was for independence? Who was in favor of joining Canada? And did Newfoundlanders make the right decision? This is Stories Behind the History. Welcome to Stories Behind the History. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History Magazine. In this podcast, I speak with leading historians and witnesses to history to discover the people and events that shaped our nation. The year 2024 marks the 75th anniversary of Newfoundland joining Canada. It happened on March 31, 1949, after months of passionate debate and an extremely close vote. There are people in Newfoundland and Labrador today who remember when it was still a British colony and who lived through the referendum on Confederation. For this special series of episodes, I traveled to St. John's, Newfoundland to interview former Premier Clyde Wells, best-selling author Bernice Morgan, artist Kathleen Noling, and former federal MP Richard Cashin about their memories of pre-Confederation Newfoundland and to ask them if they think Newfoundlanders made the right choice when they joined Canada. It was just before Christmas when I visited St. John's, and the city looked just like it does in all the postcards, with the steep and slippery snow-covered streets lined with colourful wooden houses, the big ships in the harbour, and on the other side of the harbour, a rocky hill covered with evergreens. Before I jumped into the Confederation debate, I wanted to find out what Newfoundland was like in the 1930s and 1940s, the years leading up to the referendum. My name is Clyde Wells. I was born in the centre of the island of Newfoundland in a small community called Buckins Junction, and uh, but most of my uh, earlier life was at stations along the railway line because my father worked with the railroad in, and uh, we lived in Bishop's Falls and ultimately in 1944 we moved to Stephenville Crossing on the west coast. We weren't landed gentry or anything and didn't know family wealth or anything and that my father, he didn't earn very much money. I'm the second eldest of nine children. My father had found a means of building his own house by going in the 
woods and cutting the logs and floating them down the river, getting a sawmiller to saw them by sharing half with the mill for doing it and need the other half and out of it he built our house. So we weren't, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was, they were difficult and challenging times. Clyde Wells explained to me that because the British colony of Newfoundland had originated as a fishing station in the North Atlantic, the island's population of about 300,000 people was scattered along the coastline and on nearshore islands in more than a thousand small communities. You may not have noticed, Newfoundland has no counties. In Newfoundland, we operated on bays. So you had an address, Greenspawn, Trinity Bay, Bay St. George, Notre Dame Bay, and the transportation, there were no roads at all in, in 1949. The transportation was by coastal boat. The railway ran a coastal boat service all around. So in addition to operating the railway, the railway company had the responsibility to provide transportation to all the bays and foodstuffs and freight for all of these communities that weren't connected. So there weren't many roads uh, and they were, and those were really mostly horse carts. If you got outside Cornerbrook, Grand Falls, and St. John's. St. John's was the only city at that state. Outside those three, there was not 10 miles of pavement in the entire territory. The depression of the 1930s hit these small outport communities hard. Looking to escape from poverty, many people moved into St. John's. My name is Bernice Morgan. I was born here in St. John's, where I'm still living. I was born in 1935, February the 8th. And my parents, my father from uh, Random Island, my mother from Cape Island, Bonavista North, fishing community, lumbering community, came into St. John's during the Depression, young people, to work. I had read a book. He said that uh, there were only two big kinds of people in St. John's the very extremely rich and the extremely poor. And that's not true. There was a wor working class, and that's what we were. We had a nice two-story house. We were never hungry. We didn't have a car. We didn't have any money to spend on luxuries, but we were well-fed and well-clothed. Do you remember when you were smaller, did you think of yourself as being a Newfoundlander? Did you think of yourself as being part of the British Empire? Like, how did people see themselves? Oh, we were very much a part of the British Empire. Here, especially in St. John's, almost everything imported came from England. Anything good, English tweed, English suits, English coal, was better than anything you could get from Canada. It was better made, the coal burnt better. The war came and our people joined up. I had uncles in the Navy, British Navy, and the flags were the Union Jack. We sang God Save the King. I could still uh, tear up singing There'll Always Be in England. Yes, yes, uh, we were very, very British here, in, certainly in St. John's. Morgan mentioned that even during the Depression, 
there were poor people and rich people in St. John's. Among those considered rich were a handful of merchant families. My name is Kathleen Leah Nowling. I was born in, on December the 10th, 1927. I was born in St. John's and uh, my family owned a department store, Air and Sons. We were fortunate, and my mother was an excellent manager, but we were also fortunate because my father had a regular job and in local terms, it was a very good job because he was a director of the family business. Outside of Newfoundland, we weren't actually that affluent, but we could run to a car. We had three meals a day and afternoon tea because that, of course, was the era when ladies had afternoon tea and you had uh, silver service. The maids at that time, you see, they had morning dresses which were colored and a kind of covering apron. In the afternoon they wore black uniform dresses with a very pretty little lacy cap and a kind of fancy uh, apron. Our maids usually came from branch and the girls uh, they had an uncle on a, sh on a schooner or something. They would tie up on the wharf and then the skipper would come up to the private office and say, my niece is on board and she's looking for a job in St. John's because they were literally starving in the outports. It was very, people were very, very poor. As a matter of fact, one of the girls my mother uh, had, I was saying it came from Branch, which is down the southern shore, um, uh, but there was a failure of the fishery along the whole south coast and uh, my mother trained her to make how to make soup, how to cook, because if you don't have food you don't know how to cook. Do you remember when you were growing up did you feel a connection to Canada? Did you feel a connection to Great Britain and the, the empire? Or did you just feel yourselves to be just Newfoundlanders? What was sort of the feeling, do you think? I think we felt very much, uh, certainly in St. John's, and I went to a Church of England school, although we were Methodists, but we were taught to think that England was the the place. We had to be loyal to England. One of my teachers, I remember, visited Halifax and she came back absolutely horrified. They're not even loyal to England. <laughs> horrified by it. <laughs> Do you think that was a common sentiment in St. John's? I common... think it was probably more common in that school. I think the Roman Catholic schools had a lot of Irish nuns, so they kind of tended to to think of Ireland as the kind of, you know, heaven on earth. Richard Cashin, born 1937 in the Salvation Army Hospital, St. John's, Newfoundland. Richard Cashin comes from a prominent political family in Newfoundland and he served as a federal member of parliament in the 1960s. My father used to say, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather came from New Ross, Wexford, shortly after the rising in Wexford. We came here with the prick of British bayonets in our arse, <laughs> which is the way 
we did come here. Yeah. So there was no... No, no love of Great Britain. No, there was mm. no particular love. Did you feel any connection to Canada? Like how No you... connection to Canada whatsoever. Okay. None. Absolutely none. Why didn't you ask me about Iran? We had none with them either. I was getting confused. If Newfoundlanders hadn't felt any particular connection to Canada, then why did they end up having a referendum on whether to join the country? To understand that, I had to jump back to the mid-19th century. Newfoundland was a British colony, and like the other British North American colonies, it had an elected lower house of parliament and a system of responsible government. But the vast colony which including Labrador was twice the size of Great Britain, had a unique problem. It had a small population. By 1890, there were only about 200,000 people. And that population was spread out in many hundreds of little communities scattered along the coast and on coastal islands. Outside of main centers like St. John's, there were few or no roads linking the communities together. And so in the late 1800s, the government decided to build a railroad. And that was the beginning of financial ruin. I'll let Clyde Wells explain it from here. He was the Premier of Newfoundland from 1989 to 1996, and he knows a lot about the history of the province. There were three reasons for the public debt getting beyond the ability to service it. One was foolishly undertaking the building of a, a major railroad with less than 300,000 people. The railway went uh, northwest up and then west along the northern coast, Notre Dame Bay, and then it turned southwest, worked down by Deer Lake Cornerbrook and on down to, through Stephenville Crossing to Port of Basque. And government ended up paying for it in, in the end. Uh, although it was built by R.G. Reed, uh, a private entrepreneur. And the cost, the railroad debt, became excessively burdensome. On top of the railroad debt that had been accumulated, Newfoundland accumulated massive debts during the First World War because it financed a regiment. The Royal mm. Newfoundland Regiment uh, was uh, put together and financed by the government of Newfoundland. unfair you know you were fighting for the British Empire they should have financed it well so was the rest of Canada but the rest of Canada had a greater mass to do that uh, Newfoundland with less than 300,000 people at the time and with major uh, losses at the Battle of Beaumont Hamel it it engenders and fosters patriotism it would be unpatriotic not to be supportive when people were giving mm. their lives for it so that was a big part of the factor. And there was a third element. And the third element was uh, local politics. Uh, the pressure to have expenditures and some politicians giving way to it. And when they built that railroad, to, to add to it, they then built these branch lines. You, if you look at the map of Newfoundland, a branch line down the Bonavista Peninsula could never, ever 
make money. Branch Line down to Placentia could never ever make money. Branch Line down to Trinity could never ever make money. On top of the existing debts and the unaffordable railroad came the Great Depression of the 1930s. By 1932, Newfoundland owed $97 million, mainly to a syndicate of Canadian banks. The year before, in 1931, the British Parliament had passed the Statute of Westminster, which officially recognized Newfoundland, along with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, as self-governing independent dominions within the British Commonwealth. But Newfoundland was on the verge of bankruptcy. Canada and Britain agreed to help fund Newfoundland's debt payments, while an Imperial Royal Commission of Inquiry was called to look into the situation. That Royal Commission recommended that responsible government should be suspended until Newfoundland was once again financially solvent. And so, in 1933, the Newfoundland Legislature voted to dissolve itself. Newfoundland was the only, as far as I know, country or region ever to voluntarily give up self-government, regardless of race or creed, in 1934. By early 1934, Newfoundland once again became a colony ruled by a commission of government that was made up of a governor and six commissioners, all appointed by Britain. No one I spoke to in Newfoundland had a high opinion of those commissioners. Here's Kathleen Noling. They were all many dictators. You know, they were English civil servants. They ended up here. This was the, probably their last posting. And they lived in the Newfoundland Hotel and mean as old boots, they were, the whole lot of them. They uh, seemed to have this inbred kind of meanness and snobbery. You know, they'd have breakfast in the hotel dining room and then they'd take the milk jugs and everything back to their rooms and have a kettle there and they'd have afternoon tea and use the milk and sugar from the breakfast. You know, that kind of petty thing there. But five years into the commissioner's rule came another twist of fate. The Second World War broke out in 1939 and that changed everything for Newfoundland. Join me for the next episode of Stories Behind the History to find out what the Second World War meant for Newfoundland and how it led to a referendum on Confederation with Canada. The Stories Behind the History podcast is produced by Canada's History Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or a review. It really helps others to find us. If you'd like to read more stories about Canadian history, why not subscribe to Canada's History Magazine? Our beautifully illustrated glossy magazine will be delivered to your home six times a year, chock full of fascinating stories written by Canada's top historians and journalists. To subscribe to the magazine, go to canadashistory.ca slash subscribe. Our theme music is the Red River Jig, performed by Alex Kusterok from his album Métis Fiddling for Dancing. I'm Kate Jamet. Thanks for joining me.